Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. My name is Connor Bales. I serve as one of the pastors on staff here at New Beginnings. And uh, on behalf of the entire staff, I want to welcome you to worship with us today. I'm so glad uh, to have you here. We are in the third week of a sermon series entitled Passion Week. And uh, really, we're studying the passion of Christ, the week leading up to his uh, crucifixion, burial, and subsequent resurrection. And, uh, and the first week of our series, we saw Jesus riding on that donkey with the palm branches laid before him, and it's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And, and Jesus came riding in with shouts of Hosanna, meaning save now. It was this moment of celebration and anticipation uh, for the coming Messiah. But, but the truth is what we discovered is that the, the Jesus that we truly need is not always the Jesus that we really want. And, uh, and, and so it was a good reminder that, that Jesus came to, to save us from our sin and some of us are simply hoping that he delivers us from our circumstances. And then last week, Pastor Matt helped us to see uh, Jesus turning the tables over in the temple. What a powerful moment that must have been when Jesus saw the corruption that was taking place in, a, in God's house of worship and really the barrier that existed as a result of that that was keeping God's people from encountering his very presence, which is what Jesus came to bring. Jesus is God in the flesh, so God with us has come to dwell and give his presence to us. And we saw that anything... Uh, that gets in the way of that is going to, to generate the anger of God because he's come to bring his presence to his people. And today we're going to study what, what uh, is most familiar to us as the Last Supper. It's what you and I in the church world call uh, the institution of communion or the Lord's Supper. In fact, and this is such a famous event in the Passion Week of Jesus that I would argue the most famous painting in all of the world is Leonardo da Vinci's interpretation of this very moment, the Last Supper. And so let me show you this uh, painting. This is familiar. Most of us have seen this painting. It is historic. It is uh, famous uh, around the world, and it is da Vinci's own interpretation of what you and I are going to see in our text today that Jesus uh, encountered in this upper room uh, during this uh, week. Uh, but in, in, in my preparation this week, as I thought about this moment, and I, I've taught and preached on the Lord's Supper before. In fact, as a church family, we celebrate communion. We take of the Lord's Supper about six or eight times a, a year, and almost each time I do a, a type of teaching with that. In addition, I preach sermons. You've heard us preach sermons on the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and why it is that we celebrate communion as a family of, of faith. And so I thought about this week in particular as we're studying this passion of Christ 
it might be interesting for you and I to study this moment, but to do so from the perspective of several key characters who were dining that night at dinner. You know, I think that it might be worthwhile for you and I to just try to look at this common and familiar story, but from an entirely different perspective, hoping that we might glean something new as we examine this Last Supper of Jesus with his uh, disciples. And, and the reason why is because as it relates to stories, uh, most of us know that character development are, are really what make the stories themselves come to life. It is the characters within the stories that make us uh, understand and, and grow in our endearment to the story itself. Let me, let me just explain it in movies. Uh, I'll give you my, my three favorite movies in genre. So my, my, first, uh, my favorite movie of all time, number one on my list, is Lonesome Dove. It, it is just a great film. It's, it's my favorite. It was actually a miniseries when I was growing up as a kid, uh, and, and it's, it's starred by Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Robert Duvall, uh, Danny, Danny Glover. These are some of the key characters in, in the film, and it's an epic tale of these cowboys and this grand adventure to go from South Texas uh, uh, to the northern country and to set up and establish a ranch in Montana. And, and I love it because... As you see the story unfold, it's really all about the characters' lives growing and changing and developing all uh, along the, the, the way. My, my favorite uh, sports film of all time is Hoosiers, okay? I don't know how many of you have seen Hoosiers. It's the greatest sports film in the history of ever, so don't argue with me about that. Don't come at me with Bull Durham or, all right, The Natural or uh, Field of Dreams, Okay. Um, as the, the Hoosiers is the greatest, and the reason is is because all five of the characters on the basketball team, including Ollie, who made the free throw from the granny-styled shot and got them into the uh, championship round in the playoffs, uh, and, and Gene Hackman is the coach, Norman Dale is just this great film of, of basketball, uh, but it's the characters in, in the story itself that make it come to life. My favorite comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, okay? John Candy and Steve Martin. Uh, a very spiritual movie, so I would encourage. <laughs> but the characters themselves, I mean, Steve Martin's like this buttoned-up uh, business guy, and John Candy's this down-on-his-luck uh, uh, a shower curtain salesman. I mean, it's just this grand adventure that these guys go on, and, and it's just so incredibly funny. Uh, but the reason why we love these stories is because we love the characters we find within them. And so I thought for our story today, let's look at the characters. Let's see what the character's perspective might have been. And if that can't, then enhance for us what you and I should glean from the story we're going to see uh, today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to go with me to Mark chapter 14. That's where we're going to be today, Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we always put the scriptures on the screen behind me. Or hopefully you can look on with the person uh, sitting to your right or to your left. Mark chapter 14. Now, we're going to pick it up today in verse number 10, and, and here's where we are. Jesus is in this, what is called the upper room discourse, and according to John's gospel, it's this uh, rather lengthy moment uh, between Jesus and his disciples 
uh, in, in this room. And in this uh, uh, time period, there's been a woman who has come, and, and, and at some point during the day, she has anointed Jesus with a very expensive perfume. She was actually rebuked by some of the disciples for the decision that she made to use the perfume in that way. Jesus said, no, wait, what she has done is precious to me because she has prepared me uh, for a burial that is to come. And so there's this great spiritual dialogue that is happening, and some of it is known, and some of it is completely foreign to the disciples, uh, and, and as Jesus is attempting to explain it to them. And, and then we're going to see uh, Jesus engage his disciples in a conversation in preparation for this last supper that they are going to have. Let's pick it up, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse number 10. If you're there, say, I got it. Here we go. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, I want you to just take a moment and circle that phrase, who was one of the twelve, and I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, in all of these films and stories uh, that are filled with characters, uh, we know the significance of, of those moments when, when the intensity of the story just kind of comes uh, to a point. This is one of those moments. Can you imagine the tension in the upper room based on the dialogue that we just read? I mean, it would have been palpable how thick the air would have been with awkwardness and tension at the words that Jesus has said to his disciples. It's a pretty intense moment, and, and right away we see the prominence of one of the characters that I want us to study today. And, and that is Judas. Judas Iscariot. He wasn't just anybody. Judas Iscariot was in the circle of trust. In fact, according to what we read in verse number 10, and what Jesus specified when foretelling of his betrayal in verse number 20, Judas was one of the twelve. He was an original disciple. You see, at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he has grown in fame and renown. And so there is the 12 disciples that are in the inner circle, the circle of trust. These are the disciples of Jesus Christ that he has called out 
to serve along his side. But then there are these disciples that are on the peripheral uh, that have fallen in love with the teaching of Jesus and discovered the person of Jesus, and they're following the earthly ministry of Jesus uh, as as disciples, but they're not a part of uh, the the 12. And, And yet that's not who Judas is. He wasn't simply a disciple on the peripheral or a curiosity seeker who is enamored with the celebrity that Jesus has attained. No, Judas was one of the 12 in the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. I mean, think about this. Think about what Judas has witnessed in the three years of ministry with Jesus. He's seen miracle after miracle, the feeding of thousands on a hillside in Galilee. Judas has seen firsthand Jesus exercise demons from people who are plagued by them. Judas watched Jesus bring a dead man back to life. I mean, Judas is in. In fact, according to John chapter 12, Judas was so connected that he had actually been put in charge of the financial aspects of Jesus' ministry, and he managed the money for the entirety of their group. This was no part-time follower, occasional fan, or a Christmas and Easter kind of guy. Judas was one of the 12, and yet... Judas is the one who betrays Jesus, which leads me to the first thought that I want to share with you from our story today, and that is this. If you're taking notes, let me encourage you to write this down. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Now, let me just explain. Judas's issue is not that he doesn't know God. Judas's issue is not that he isn't around God. Judas's issue is that he doesn't have a saving relationship with God. You see, family, just because someone is near doesn't mean that someone is known. And listen, Let's not miss this. Don't you know that Judas must have loved getting some of the benefits of being near Jesus? In fact, according to John's gospel, not only was Judas the treasurer for Jesus' ministry, but he helped himself to some of the treasure. I'll bet Judas enjoyed the perks of not having to wait in line everywhere he went. I bet Judas enjoyed the perks of special business dealings with other people who knew Jesus as well. I bet Judas... Enjoyed the perks of walking into a room and being recognized as a spiritually significant someone. Judas had proximity to Jesus, but not a saving relationship with Jesus. And I wonder how many of us might also be guilty of loving the proximity, but maybe not necessarily the person. Like it's baseball season, right? And uh, our Major League Baseball teams are nearing the end of their spring training. I've always thought it strange and what the dynamic must look like in the clubhouse for an individual on the team who holds out in an attempt to renegotiate their contract for the entirety of spring training. So all of the workouts that would be happening for hours uh, at a time every day or for even multiple times uh, of the day, for the time spent away from family that these players are giving up in an attempt to ready themselves for their season. And then this holdout negotiates their contract and joins the team just in time for the season to begin. They're reaping all the benefits 
of being on the team without going through the hardship and actually enduring the reality of what it means to become one. I think the same is true for Christians as well. How many of us might be mistaking our nearness to the things of God with a saving relationship in the person of Jesus? We love the benefits, but not necessarily Jesus himself. We, we love what Jesus can get for us, but not necessarily who Jesus is to us. And, and here's why this matters. This is a problem here today. It is a problem in East Texas where you and I live. In the buckle of the Bible Belt, this issue is real. I promise you, our issue is not one of proximity, but it absolutely is one of person. There are going to be thousands of people who will say, well, oh yeah, I know Jesus. Yes, but are you known by Jesus? Well, I'm near Jesus, yes, but are you saved in Jesus? Because proximity doesn't guarantee a saving relationship. Haven't you read what is written in Matthew chapter 7? When the Bible says in verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Listen to what he's saying. Are we not near? Proximity is not the problem. I know Jesus. I've been around the things of God. I've grown up in the church. But you're not saved. Listen to what Jesus says. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, let me be clear. I do not believe this passage of Scripture is given to cause believers to doubt the legitimacy of their salvation. But I absolutely believe it is, it is given to bring conviction to those who are not saved but think they should be. It's given so that we might know proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. I'll explain it this way. Um, there's a difference between neighbors and friends, right? So I can tell you about my neighbors, like Miss Jill across the street is a sweet lady. She has a small white Pomeranian dog that yips all the time, but she's very kind to my children. She works out in the yard uh, uh, quite a bit. She's very, very polite. Uh, Jared and Polly across the street are super sweet. My kids play with their kids all the time. Uh, Dana and Jean next door are very polite people, and they mow their yard two days after I mow mine. Uh, I guess they come under conviction uh, as a result. Uh, and, and, and Mimi and Papa live next door. My first introduction to them was when Mimi was shooting squirrels out of the tree with a BB gun. <laughs> There's some people on the other side of Dana and Jean, and when my kids kick the ball or hit the ball into their yard, they're not very polite in response to that. I won't tell you their name. Just come over and you can figure it out. <laughs> These are my neighbors. But let me tell you about my friends. Matt Darby's one of the closest friends that I have. And Matt Darby knows secrets about me. And I know secrets about him. And he's my, one of my first phone calls when something goes wrong. And I, I'm one of his. And Matt and I have a relationship that is more than just acquaintances who happen to wave and talk shop about how nice the weather has been this week. 
We have a genuine relationship. Well, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, some of us have kept Jesus in the zone of a neighbor when in reality he has come to call us friends. Don't you see the difference? Proximity is not the problem. I'm living right next door. The issue is one of relationship. Some of you are in church, great. You grew up in church, great. But you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I've talked to people about this before. I think one of the hardest places to do ministry is not necessarily in a foreign context where people are lost and they know it. It's right here where people are lost and they're convinced that they've been saved. Because we're convinced that proximity is enough. And Judas should be a warning to us, a reminder to us that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. We're going to know that we're saved based on how we live our life and the fruit which is born from it. Our salvation is not because we are near to Jesus, but because we are known by him. Remember that proximity doesn't guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. Far too many of us, in my opinion, have a a Judas-like affection for Jesus. So, like, where Jesus is a love in our life, but not the love of our life. Like, uh, Mary and I have a wonderful home, and uh, it's uh, it's the favorite home we've ever owned, and we've had several. And, uh, And I just love it. I love the architecture. I love the the floor plan, and, and, and it's just comfortable. It's a home, I think, where, where, you, can just, where you can just feel comfortable. And it's been a, a good place for our, our family, and we, we just absolutely love our home. Now, here's what I could tell you. If somebody knocks on my door and, and has a check and the comma's in the right place, it's for sale. <laughs> Am I right? It's for sale. Now, I love our home. Uh, but it is, if somebody has a check and, and the number is right, it's for sale. Now, if that same someone has a check and they ask if they can buy one of my kids, there's no number that they could write. Well, no, hang on. <laughs> it's, been, all right, it's been a morning, okay? There's no number that they could write that would be enough for me to give one of them up. You understand what I'm saying? So listen, um, I think that's how it's supposed to be with God. That he can't just be a love, like, like my home. He's got to be the, the love of our life. Ju- Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver what are we selling him out for? Like it's, it's, it's spring, the weather's getting warm. People are starting to play select sports and travel all over the place. Do you know how many weekends we're going to sacrifice and how much church we're going to give up for something that matters so much less than Jesus? You with me? I mean, what is, whatever it is that we are chasing and attempting to obtain in lieu of Jesus is the cost that we're willing to sell him out for. 
For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. For you and I, it's much, much less than that. Let's keep reading. I want to show you another of our characters, but I want us to jump ahead in the story and see where he shows up. Look at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, so they're coming to the conclusion of this moment in the upper room, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, here's my guy, Peter. Man, I can relate. Anybody relate to Peter out there? I can relate to Peter. He is an impulsive, brash, bold. He is a fighter. Peter is a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? And yet, this tough as nails, fiercely loyal fighter for the cause of Christ turns on Jesus in the moment perhaps when Jesus needed him the most, which leads me to the second thought from our story today, and that is this. Self-sufficiency is inefficiency. Self-sufficiency is insufficiency. Did you pay attention to the dialogue between Jesus and Peter? Jesus says, tonight somebody's going to betray me and you guys are going to deny me. And Peter's reply, not me. Uh Uh-uh. Then Jesus says, yes, Peter, it's going to be you. In fact, you're going to deny me before breakfast. And Peter says, even if it costs me my life, I won't deny you, Jesus. And of course, we know that Peter did exactly as Jesus said he would. But man, was he adamant that he would not. Peter was so confident in himself, and it cost him. Peter's trust was in Peter. His self-sufficiency proved entirely inefficient. Family, I, I wonder... How many of us are guilty of the same thing? We think, I've got this season of my life. I got this. Or we think, uh, I can make these decisions and navigate these relationships all by myself. Even with spiritual things, much like Peter. I'm not going to do that. I would never sell out. We will never sacrifice uh, 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 church. We will never sacrifice our uh, fidelity to God's word. We will never sacrifice uh, the priority that Jesus places in our family or in our home. No, not me. I got this. And yet, why? Why Why would we think like that? Well, because I think perhaps much like Peter... We, too, have seen God move, and instead of trusting in God because of that, we place our confidence in ourselves who have simply enjoyed the blessings which have come from it. Like about 10 years ago, I had my gallbladder taken out. I had gallstones. It was very painful, and so I had surgery, and the surgeon removed my gallbladder. Can you imagine how silly it would be if after being the recipient of a successful gallbladder removal surgery, I then decided that I was in a good position to perform that surgery on someone else. (laughs) Any volunteers? I'm just... It's weird if you're laying on the table to think you're somehow qualified to stand up over it. And yet I think that's the issue with Peter. 
I think that Peter is someone who has received the blessings of the workmanship of God, and now somehow he has taken credit as though he is responsible for it. Peter's trusting Peter. Now listen, I don't think it's in relationship to salvation. I think Peter is saved, and that is secure. I think it's in relationship to his sanctification. I think with the ongoing work of God that has been entrusted for Peter to live, he's saying, I got this. We do the same thing. So we'll say, yeah, I belong to Jesus Christ, but as it relates to my life, as it relates to my relationships, as it relates to my job, as it relates to my kids, I'm good. No, you're not. Peter is the proof positive that that is not true. Solomon, he warns us of the spiritual dangers that come with self-sufficiency. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, the Bible says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So this demands that you and I check ourselves and ask the tough question. Am I insufficient because I'm self-sufficient? Upon whom and by what do I consider myself right with God? Uh, again, I think we trust in Jesus for our salvation, but the question is, are we trusting in Jesus for our sanctification? We have to be a people who guard ourselves against seeing Jesus as this golden treasure that we somehow discover and then move beyond. Jesus, look at Jesus is a gold mine that we discover and exhaust the rest of our lives trying to draw out. Don't you see? Look at me. You never outgrow the gospel. The moment that we think we have moved beyond the gospel is the moment that we have failed to truly understand it. Like uh, I was talking about this between services with Pastor Matt. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney, uh, but Disney has these great simulator rides. One of, one of them is Star Wars. And it's an awesome simulator ride whereby you feel like you're in the cockpit of one of these fighter jets as you're flying around and, and you're having these interactions with uh, 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 the, the, uh, the other pilots uh, that, are, that are on your side. You're the rebels and you're fighting against the empire and it's just these epic moments and you feel fully encompassed. Well, imagine getting out of a simulator and looking around and saying, anybody got a plane? I got this. Throw me the keys. I'm good. That wouldn't work. Okay, but listen, that's what Peter's doing, and that's what we do as well. Like we experience Jesus in this all-encompassing way where he's all around us, and he's overwhelmed us, and then we all of a sudden think that we've graduated, and we've moved beyond it, and we say, no, I got this, God. I'm good. Listen, self-sufficiency is entirely insufficient. The sooner you and I come to the recognition of that, the, the greater we're going to be in the relationship that God has entrusted for us to live. But let's go back to the meal, to the Last Supper, and focus on the most important character in our story. Let's focus on Jesus. Pick it up in verse 22. We're going to go back. Verse 22. And as, as they were eating, he, that's Jesus, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I, w- I want to just share with you my last thought that I believe we should clearly see in the most important character in the story that we've read. And the thought is this. The gospel is about unconditional love given to an undeserving people. The gospel is about an unconditional love given to an undeserving people. The ministry of Jesus is all about his sharing and his sacrificing. If you wanted to sum up what is the ministry of Christ, it is his sharing and his sacrificing. In our text, we should note that Jesus invites his disciples to partake of this symbolic meal. Listen, there's no force feeding here. Jesus doesn't make his disciples do anything. He invites his disciples as he breaks bread and as he passes a cup. The word that Jesus says to them is take. It's take. The bread is passed, the cup is passed, and each disciple chooses as to whether or not they partake. So let me be frank with you this morning. None of you are forced into a relationship with Jesus. None of you. Despite what you might think our motives are as a church, if you don't want Jesus, he's not forcing you to love him. Instead, he freely gives himself to you, and you choose. Just like they did when the bread and the cup were passed, and Jesus' invitation was the same. Take. The choice is yours. But keep in mind, if you refuse Jesus, you're going to be hungry. And, and, and Jesus is the only thing that spiritually satisfies. We play this game sometime with my kids. Mary will make dinner, and uh, my kids will decide that they don't like what she's cooked. And you know what I say? You're going to be hungry. Because mom made dinner. And they'll say, well, can I order a pizza? Or can we run to Taco Bell? No. Mm-mm. Because mom already made dinner, and I already paid for it once, and we're not going to pay for it again. And if you choose not to eat what has been provided that will satisfy you physically, you're going to be hungry. Well, brothers and sisters, if we choose not to eat that which has been provided for us spiritually, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be hungry. But the choice is yours. Jesus has shared, and then he invites to take and to eat. And listen, I've just been convicted this week as it relates to our personal evangelism as a church. That means yours and, and my willingness to tell other people about the good news of the gospel. If Jesus shared of himself with us, then shouldn't those of us who have partaken share him with others who we know are hungry as well? Like if we have found food that nourishes our souls, shouldn't we be willing to tell other people where the bread comes from? Knowing that they're hungry as well. And, and think about this. Think about all the things that we're eager to tell other people. Like we're going to tell one another about where we found the best restaurants. We're going to tell one another about the greatest movies we've recently seen. We're going to tell one another about our favorite stories. We're going to share with one another on our social media about all our family's pictures. But why wouldn't we then share about where we have found nourishment for our soul? 
Because the gospel of Jesus is worth so much more than that. And not only does Jesus invite the disciples to partake, but as he explains the elements themselves, the bread and the wine, he highlights that it's a sacrifice. It's symbolic of a sacrifice that he has come to make. First, he took the bread and he broke it, and he explained that the bread was representative of his body, which would be broken for all who received him. And then he took the the cup, and he explained that it was red from the fruit of the vine, and it represented his blood, which was uh, poured out or spilt blood uh, 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 for a new covenant, which has been given to all who would receive him. And just like covenants of old, this shed blood ratifies a new covenant between God and men. A body broken and shed blood can only mean one thing. Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice for the payment of sin. You see, this last supper that these disciples had gone ahead to prepare, it was the Jewish Passover. And here's why that's significant. The Jewish Passover meal was a historic uh, celebration, a ritual of remembrance, whereby Israel would gather annually uh, to be reminded of God's deliverance from 400 years of Egyptian captivity. God had very specific instruction for how his people were to prepare and to celebrate their Passover meal. He, he required that they take a lamb that was without blemish and that they sacrifice each family a lamb and from that sacrifice take the blood of that spotless lamb and wash it over the doorpost of every home. Then, just like in Egypt, uh, when this uh, angel of death would come to collect for the rebellion of sin against God, that angel of death would pass over every Egyptian household that was under the blood covering of a spotless lamb. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, Jesus is the greater lamb. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the final blood covering that is over everyone who gives themselves over to him in faith. We celebrate the Lord's Supper either in our reading or in our participation. We remember that Jesus died a death in our place and for our sins. He gave his life for ours. This is why it's written in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And here's what I think is probably most significant about this night and this supper. Jesus knows who's at dinner with him. Right? I mean, Jesus knows who's at the table. Jesus knows that Judas is at dinner. And I would bet you that Peter was sitting right next to him. And so Jesus knows exactly who is at dinner, and it is to this group of men and women standing by that Jesus says, I know who you are, I know what you've done, and I know what you're going to do. And it is for you, those of you that are going to deny me, those of you that are going to betray me, it is for you that I am going to break my body so yours might be spared. I'm going to spill my blood so that you won't have to. I'm going to live a life that you cannot live and die a death that you deserve so that you who are having dinner with me, who are going to deny me, might be saved. And if Jesus did that for those at that table, don't you know you and I are around it as well? 
We're at the dinner table. I don't know which character you identify with. I don't know if you find yourself to be more like Judah, Judas and, and that your issue is one of proximity and, and not one of person or whether you think you're Peter and your self-sufficiency is entirely inefficient. But what I want you to know is that Jesus sees you at the dinner table and he came and he lived and he died and he has risen for you. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the hope that was instituted in this Last Supper. And so as we close, I just want to ask you, which character do you relate with? I want to be as clear as I can, too. Because I, I just know in this room this morning, there are some of you who relate to Judas. Your issue is one of proximity. You are near to God, but not known by God. For you, it would be said, man, I've grown up in the church. I've grown up in the church. My mom and dad were Christians. My grandmother took me to church since I was a kid. Yeah, but does the, your life indicate that you have truly been saved? I don't know. I've been doubting for a long time. You don't have to. You don't have to. Matthew 7, some of you are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? Jesus can say, you were near, but you weren't known. Listen, don't you, look at me. Don't you realize your family pedigree means nothing? God has no grandchildren. You don't get to heaven because your parents were saved. It's got to be your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Your own. And just because you've grown up, just because you hang out here, doesn't mean that you have a saving relationship with Jesus. Proximity is one thing. The person is another. The question is, which have you given yourself over to? Judas sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Some of you are selling out for so much less than that. You like the peripheral advantages of being a Christian, but you're not actually saved. It's good for you to know about God. It's good for you to hang out near the church. But man, do you have a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ? This is the burden of my heart. You want to know what burden, listen, you want to know what keeps me up at night about our church? It's this. It's that we're going to be a people who are deceived. Man, we might do some good things. We might meet some needs and serve some people that need help. But we could do so with a group of men and women that don't actually know Jesus Christ. God help us if you're here and you have convinced yourself that you're good with God. But in the end, he's a neighbor, not a friend. And so listen, this is the invitation for you. Make your calling and election sure. If you are here today and, and there is a war going on in your mind, that is you versus the Spirit of God, and I'm asking you to surrender. I can't save you. I can't. I can't manipulate you into being saved. 
This is your relationship with God. All I can do is tell you what his word declares, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. The moment that you decide, I'm tired of wondering and I want absolute assurance, the Bible says you can have it. I think Matthew 7 is your assurance. It's not to cause legitimate Christians to doubt their salvations. It's to cause those who think that they're saved but aren't to question. And so listen, that's the invitation. I just believe in this room, I just believe there are some of us that need to get saved. That's what I think. That's what I've been praying. I don't want any of you to have this false assurance where you think somehow I'm good because I'm close. Man, proximity is one thing. The person is the other. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, we're going to stand to our feet. And the invitation for you is this. If you are here today and you don't know whether or not you have a saving relationship with Jesus or you want one, then I am inviting you Listen, I'm inviting you to step out and step forward and let us talk with you about how you can be saved. In fact, I would argue, if you feel compelled right now and you're like, I can't wait for him to get to the end of this thing because I'm going, then I would argue you're saved in your seat. He's already done it. And so I'm gonna pray and when I say amen, we're gonna stand to our feet, we're gonna sing. And, uh, and I'm going to invite those of you who need to be saved to come forward. And I'm praying, I'm praying that you would stop arguing with that voice in your head because the Spirit of God wants you. Jesus has come for you. And God loves you. The cross is the greatest evidence of that. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray right now. I'm asking in a bold way, Lord Jesus, that you would save right now. I'm praying save them in their seats, God, right now. I'm asking that you would cause men and women to realize that they've been close but not saved, not known. And proximity is no substitute for personhood. So Lord Jesus, save, rescue, redeem. I'm asking that we would no longer wonder whether or not we belong, but we would have absolute assurance that we have been rescued. And so Lord Jesus, I thank you for loving us and never leaving us nor forsaking us. And I pray that in a supernatural way, you would move right now. We ask it in faith. I pray it in faith. In Jesus' good name, amen. As you look up, I'm going to invite you to stand up. Listen.